You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redemption Hill Church, where we love to make much of Jesus. Um, I hope you gathered that as we sang this morning. Uh, we are continuing on in our sermon series uh, through the book of Acts. And um, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, we have a little bit of ways to go. Um, but we believe here at Redemption Hill Church, we want to dig into God's word. And we love preaching through books of the Bible because the Bible is God's revealed word to us, for us. And so we have a lot to learn from it. And the sermon series is called The World Turns, Turned Upside Down. The, the premise of that particular title is that what we read in the book of Acts is God on mission to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. And the way he does that is he uses his disciples. And what's happening in Acts is that the world is literally being turned upside down. Um, things are happening. And without Christ, people are trying to make sense of it. Like, what's going on here? With Christ, it makes complete sense. And so today, we find ourselves in this journey through the book of Acts in Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. The passage reminds me of several stories from church history. Here's here's what I mean. Uh, If you you were to study the historical development of the church, uh, you know, beginning in the first century till today, uh, you will see the church become more defined by conflict. It's interesting to think about it that way, but it's true. Uh, For example, in the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine um, called all the Christian leaders together to to discuss significant Christian doctrines. Uh, Dust was kind of kicked up because of this guy named Arius of uh, Alexandria. Um, Long story short, Arius caused a controversy because he affirmed that Christ is not divine, but a created being. And if you know Orthodox Christianity and Orthodox theology, that's a huge no-no. Huge no-no. And this is what this guy, Arius, was, was preaching and espousing. I'm not going to do the story justice, but here's my point. The Council of Nicaea was convened by Constantine in 325 A.D. And this was in response to what is called this Arian controversy. It's in response to this guy who is preaching false doctrine. So we have a controversy and we have a response to the controversy. Now if you don't know the Nicene, this is kind of a sidebar. If you don't know the Nicene Creed, I encourage you to read it. Let the truth wash over you and love it. It's a fantastic creed that just speaks truth. Truth from God's word. The creation of the Nicene Creed is one example of many in church history where controversy necessitated a response. And the response would often clarify doctrines, what we believe about the Bible, or our understanding of the church. So controversy required a response which brought clarity. Perhaps the first controversy requiring a response from church leaders which provided clarity on an issue, is found here in Acts 6, right? And from the response would emerge clarity about roles in the church, along with how specific people should function within the church. Acts 6 is not exhaustive, but does lay the foundation of 
what I call local church polity or local church government, if you want to say it like that. And it's filled out, this, this particular foundation is laid in Acts and it's filled out in the rest of the New Testament. For some, Acts 6 might provide some new categories, like what is he talking about? What does polity mean? What is, use some other language here in a minute. What's going on here? That might provide some new categories for you. For others, hopefully, it brings more clarity about what these roles are and how these roles within the church and how these people should function. But if I could sum up Acts 6, 1 to 7, I'm just... I'm getting right to the point. This is what I mean leading you through. I would sum up Acts 6 like this. Very simple. We serve, God saves. We serve, God saves. It's that simple. Here's a quick summary of how we arrived to Acts 6. Um, so far in Acts, uh, we've seen kind of two themes arise as we've gone through it. Uh, two in particular that come to my mind are persecution and proclamation. Persecution and proclamation. Thus far in the book of Acts, we have seen the apostles, and in particular Peter and John, proclaim the gospel, which invited persecution. First, and the most obvious means of persecution is by the hands of the Jewish leaders, right? The Jewish leaders are not happy about this new movement that had developed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they did everything they could to suppress the movement. We've seen this several times in the book of Acts, um, including last week. We have also seen a second means of persecution, which was more internal, right? That was an external means of persecution. We've seen internal persecution. We saw two weeks ago when we took a look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. What we see there is that Satan tried to suppress the church by creating within the church a culture of hypocrisy. Um, quite interesting. Talked a lot about that when we were talking about Ananias and Sapphira. And I would say, as a, in regards to that, the devil's still at it today, trying to create in the church cultures of hypocrisy. This morning, we read about a third way the devil tries to suppress the church and, and suppress the proclamation of the gospel. It's through complaints or grumbling that takes place in the local church. We will see in a moment that the reason for the grumbling was legit. It was legit. Nonetheless, there were people in the church grumbling to one another. I'll try to let John Stott, the late John Stott, help me, help back me up in this observation. We have seen the three tactics which the devil employed in his overall strategy to destroy the church. First, he tried through the Jewish authorities to su suppress it by force. Remember, Peter and John were beaten. Secondly, through the married couple Ananias and Sapphira to corrupt it by hypocrisy. And thirdly, through some squabbling widows to distract its leadership from prayer and preaching. And so, what happens when you distract from prayer and preaching of the gospel? What happens? You expose it to error and evil. I think John's, John Stott's last point is pertinent for today. A way to keep the gospel from spreading is to distract the ones who are doing the proclaiming. In Acts 6, we see the apostles, and they need to respond to the, a real threat to the unity of what? What is a growing church, right? It is growing. What is interesting about this passage is that the response of the apostles begins to shape the roles and responsibilities in the local church. 
from this controversy, we see the beginning of a kind of a, a local church structure. It's beginning to develop. Listen, I know that talking about local church polity or government or structure, whatever language you want to use, is not the most dazzling uh, topic in the world, right? No one's like clamoring to go to a book about, hey, I just want a book on church, church uh, structure or polity. I mean, if you're if you like me and you go to that, come talk. We can have a good conversation, get some coffee. I, I acknowledge that. But this is what I want to submit to you this morning. What we see in Acts 6 is good polity beginning to develop, but also at work. Uh, the practical needs are being met within the church. That would be the first thing. And then second, the gospel message is proclaimed and people are saved. Therefore, I think it's important to wrestle with what it looks like for the local church to have what we now call these days offices. Um, and we want to understand the implications from these offices within the local church. And as a church that's just growing, where I mean, we're just getting at it, we've, we're coming up to a year, it's important that we think well about what structure looks like within the church because we want to reach people with the gospel. That's the end goal, right? We want to be part of God's plan. And what's interesting, I was, I was mulling this over, and we see this all over the Bible. God shows us order all over the Bible. Creation, what do you see? God created the world. He's ordering creation. We see how, seeing God's word, how he talks about the home. God is talking about order in the home. Um, here at Redemption Hill Church, we call ourselves uh, continuationists. We believe in the ongoing gifts of the Holy Spirit. But even, even when you get to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's talking about, God's word's talking about order in the church. And so today, it's the same thing. And when order is observed, there is blessing. So, as we did at the beginning of Acts 5, we're slowing down here a bit in Acts 6. Um, again, we see the church is growing, which is great, but with church growth comes challenges. There is a new need emerging, which is also fostering the aforementioned complaints or grumbling. The rise of new needs in the church and the grumbling causes the apostles to respond. In, in some respects, this local church right here, I'm talking about Redemption Hill Church, will face similar challenges. Uh, if this church faces similar challenges, the question then becomes, how do we respond? What do we do? Well, this passage is the beginning of a blueprint about how to respond. And I want to say this before moving on. Dealing with emerging needs because a church is growing is a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have. But we have to recognize some of the tensions or dangers that can come with needs that emerge. So what's the problem in Acts 6? Let's look and learn. The text tells us the problem is clear, I think. The first, here's the first verse of the chapter. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so there's growth, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So you have a group of people over here who are beginning to complain about this group over here. And they're widows. And these widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That is, the Hellenist widows were being neglected. Here's the problem in a nutshell. Since Pentecost, Acts 2, right? The church was not only growing numerically, but also in diversity. What was once a fairly um, homogenous religion is seeing non-Aramaic-speaking Jews saved and now a part of the church. 
These people are identified as Hellenistic-speaking Jews. That is to say, these were Jews who became Christians and they spoke Greek. These people likely lived most of their lives. Now, I'm giving, kind of giving you some color here. They probably lived outside of Jerusalem and didn't know Hebrew or Aramaic, uh, the language of the Jews. And at some point, they probably relocated to Jerusalem and now part of this church. Um, this example that I'm going to give doesn't quite capture what is going on in Acts 6, but I think you'll get the gist. The situation could be like this for us. What if next week, like, we double, triple in size, right? Double, triple in size. God is saving his people or people are coming. And then most of those people are like Spanish-speaking Mexicans, right? Just picking a group, a people group. Um, far-fetched scenario, perhaps, but stick with me. Well, with the blessing of growth can come unique challenges, right? There'd be challenges. With the blessing of growth could come tension. With growth comes New needs within the church. The unfortunate situation in the early church is that the diversity from growth was leading to this grumbling. Here's why I think the situation was far worse than our English translations let on. In verse 1, we read the word complaint. That's probably how your um, translation um, uses that Greek word, uses it as complaint. However, throughout the New Testament, this Greek word is actually translated as grumbling. Which tells me there's more going on than kind of what meets the eye. Uh, an exhortation in Philippians says this. This is what Paul says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Same word there. Same Greek word that we see in Philippians 2.14 here in Acts 6.1. We have this exhortation in Philippians because the devil likes to use complaints and grumbling to divide the church. We have this exhortation because God wants his church united. Now, I do think the complaint or grumbling did stem from a real problem that developed in the church. The Greek-speaking Jewish widows, who are now Christians, were not being, uh, were not being cared for in the same way as the Aramaic-speaking Jewish widows. Sorry, Hellenists weren't being treated in the same way as the Jewish widows, who all, I think, are now Christians. So I don't think it is a stretch to say there's some discrimination taking place. They're just trying to figure out what does it look like to be a diverse church? What do we do with this? Again, back to my far-fetched example. What we see in the first century would be like setting up a benevolence fund in the church, but saying only English-speaking Iowans can tap into the benevolence fund. So all y'all who relocated from Minnesota... You're out. But I'm still in because I'm actually born here. So You might remember from Galatians 3. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So, the gospel cuts the legs out of discrimination in the local church. So please don't miss what the apostles were up against and what you read in Galatians 3. 
One way the church can distinguish herself from the world is to live knowing that all Christians are one in Christ, regardless of age, skin color, ethnic background, national origin, native language. You treat another brother or sister in Christ with the same love, respect, and equality that you treat someone else who is just like you. You treat all brothers and sisters in Christ as people who have souls who have been redeemed by a Savior. Now, if you don't read discrimination in this passage, that's fine. At the very least, we can say there were problems with administration, right? Um, Someone was dropping the ball. I don't know if they didn't have a spreadsheet to look at which told them who gets food and when. I don't know if they were sleeping in and missing the morning meeting. Who knows? Regardless, there was a problem that had the potential to divide the church. The crux of the issue in Acts 6 was about how food was distributed. In the first century context, and and from the Old Testament, a woman whose husband had died, a widow, was earmarked, in a sense, for practical care. The same principle is carried forward in the New Testament. The book of James tells us, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit the orphans, which we all get that part, but it's also to care for the widows and their affliction. When a woman's husband dies, she relies on the community for help, and the church community rallies around the widow. So, when that help is not distributed fairly, the complaint becomes valid, right? However, it is received. The facts are the facts. The apostles, who are at this point leaders in their local church and who have yet to move out of Jerusalem to evangelize, recognize the problem. So the twelve apostles gather all the other disciples to propose a solution in verse 2. Here's the solution, and then I will back up and look at why the the apostles proposed this solution. Here's verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Their solution was to appoint seven people to be tasked to care for the Greek-speaking widows. Easy enough, right? But look at who picked out these particular individuals to serve. Who picked him out? The church. The church picked him out. I appreciate the apostles directing the church to discern who should take care of these practical needs. Here's why. And this answer, I'm going to give you this answer from from Redemption Hill Church perspective. As a pastor and elder, I do the best I can to know the church, right? However... This is especially uh, the case as the church grows, right? There's going to be challenges. God does work in the body of Christ in ways that I sometimes do not see. But you all might see it. I know for a fact people get cared for in particular ways that I'm never privy to. Which is how the body of Christ should work. It's how we should function. Here in Acts 6... The church knew who should be tasked with the distribution of food because they had already seen people serve right in front of their eyes. They're like, ah, I got a couple suggestions here. That guy over there, he helped me. That guy over there, he serves all the time. The apostles, 
did spell out three specific characteristics of these men. So the apostles were leading the church in identifying who should serve. First, here are, the, here are some of the characteristics. First, they should be men of good reputation, meaning they need to be thought well of, I think, by people inside the church as well as outside the church. Second, they should be full of the Holy Spirit. So like Pentecost was a big deal, right? Remember Pentecost, guys? Is that a big deal to you? Okay, that's one of the characteristics, one of the qualifications to serve here. Pentecost matters. And then the Holy Spirit working in them. And it's the third characteristic. They're full of wisdom. Do you see what is developing as a result of this controversy? There are guys, these are guys you know who can help you when there is need, and you know that they're going to give you wisdom rooted in God. These are wonderful characteristics of, of any Christian, but especially for a person called to serve the elders by serving the church. I want to make one more observation about what the apostles did not say and then explain why the apostles look to provide organization to what it is like for people to receive practical care in the church. Notice the apostles did not blame anyone for the clear oversight of the distribution of food. Even though there was complaining or grumbling, the focus was on finding a solution. How do we solve the problem? Even though discrimination could have been taking place, they were, not, they were going to let their actions speak. They acknowledged the issue at hand and swiftly dealt with the issue at hand. So, in the wisdom, with the wisdom of the local church and the affirmation of the apostles, we have these men who kind of rise to the top. So we got Stephen, which we're going to talk a lot more about next week, right? And he's described as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. we got this guy, Philip, who also shows up in the book of Acts. And we'll get to that as we continue to journey through this book. Uh, Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, were chosen to serve the Greek widows. And I also find this interesting. Might not, not, might not be able to see this in the English, but in the Greek, all those names are Greek. Interesting. Now, what I think Acts 6 is describing is the birth of the office of deacon. Uh, the office of deacon. Deacons are individuals called to serve. Uh, I think this is a sub-point to the main point, um, but I, I would like to make a few observations about what this text says about deacons. And by the way, this is one of probably three texts, main texts that we go to when we think about the office of deacon. Deacon, in the Greek, simply means serve or servant. Now, in one sense, everyone in the church, everyone in the church is called to serve. Um, here's just one passage of many that makes the point clear uh, from Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, uh, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, right? Rather, so instead of doing this fleshly thing, rather, serve one another humbly in love. Called to serve each other. God wants you to use your gifts to serve the body of Christ. But there are times when individuals can, can be singled out as deacons. I think Romans 16.1 could be, I say could be, 
one of the moments in the New Testament where a person is singled out to be a deacon. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, a deacon of the church in Centuria. She's connecting a church to an office, to a name. That's my translation. So one quick parenthetical statement here. If you are reading, what you're reading on the screen is looking a little different than your Bible. Um, I need to explain that real quick. The passage on the, on the screen suggests Phoebe is a deacon, while your translation, if you, especially if you have a CSB or ESV, might say that she is a servant. <laughs> I don't want to get off track, but I'm going to use this moment to tell you to check out a podcast that we've been doing, but I'm going to drop one tomorrow to explain why I do think women can be deacons. If you don't know, it's called Cornfield Theology. Best name named podcast I could find out there. But it's going to explain more of that. I don't want to get off track, but I'm just going to push you there if you have questions. Or you can ask me. Now, the word deacon. Now, back on track here. The word deacon is not used to describe the seven people identified in Acts 6. Isn't that interesting? It's not used to describe these individuals. But I do not think we need to see that connection to understand where the office of deacon is headed in the New Testament. For the sake of argument, here is the most clear passage about deacons in the New Testament. It's from 1 Timothy 3. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in too much wine. These are qualifications. Not pursuing dishonest gain that must keep uh, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, or you could say likewise, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. I take some liberty to make this connection between Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3, because as we grow as a church, I pray God will raise up individuals to serve the church in specific ways. Now, I appreciate how R.C. Sproul described deacons in his church. As the church grows, he said, there are more tables to serve. That's the language he gets right out of Acts 6. There are more tables to serve, more widows to visit, more orphans to care for. And we have grown our diaconate, the office of deacon, proportionally. The work of our deacons is indispensable. As I've already said, all Christians are called to serve in their local church. We're all called to serve. But there will be some individuals called to serve in specific ways so that the elders can serve the church through prayer and the preaching of God's word. And I think this is the main point of the passage right here. The controversy in Acts 6 could have, been, could have become a distraction to the gospel ministry. That's what's at stake here. But the remedy to the problem allowed the apostles to be freed up for what God was calling them to do. Here are verses 2 and 4 in Acts 6. They said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word, the word of God, to serve tables. In verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. These two verses are extremely helpful, especially as you try to figure out church structure or church polity. 
they're helpful to help us understand how the church should function. And what's interesting is that we do see the Greek word for serve applied to the preaching of God's word. The ESV plainly translates verse 2 for you and puts serve in there. And the word ministry in verse 4 is actually the Greek word for serve. So what I do week in and week out is serve the local church by preaching the word of God. Now, full disclosure, honest moment. When I first began to preach, um, I didn't see it right away. I didn't make that connection. People would come up to me and say, hey, brother, thanks for serving. And I'd be like, that's a weird way of saying thanks. Like, what are you talking about, serving, you know? Uh, I didn't get it. I didn't see preaching as an act of service. And I would guess if you took a poll um, with Bible-believing evangelicals and how they view preaching, do they view preaching as an act of service? I'm not sure they would quite understand collectively as a whole. Here in Acts 6, preaching is clearly called an act of service in the local church. So deacons serve the church by freeing up elders and pastors to preach and pray, and elders serve the church through those means. Now, if you stop to think about it, it's a brilliant economy for the local church that God has shown us through his word. It's brilliant. Now, this passage did cause me to reflect a bit. I was ruminating on something I said to the core team um, right before we planted Redemption Hill Church, right before we started Redemption Hill Church, and even before I preached a sermon um, at Redemption Hill Church, I said my goal as a pastor, as an elder, is threefold. It's just simple. It's to preach. It's to pray. It's to be with people. Those three. I'm called to preach God's word for the good of every soul within shouting distance. I'm going to be on my knees in prayer for the church and for the lost, and I'm going to be, as much as I'm able, present with God's people. Pastors are shepherds who need to be with the sheep. Now, to be fair, I stole all those peas from Kevin DeYoung, so credit to him, but I, I'm taking them and I'm using them and I'm applying them best I can. Acts 6 is so helpful because it lays out the roles and responsibilities of elders and deacons in the church. Now, I acknowledge that it is the apostles in view, not elders in Acts 6, but what we're going to see as we continue to go through the book of Acts, as we continue to journey through this particular book, that as the apostles go out to evangelize, right, as they preach the word, there's going to be local churches, and they're going to set in place elders to do the very thing that we're reading about here in Acts 6. These elders are going to be called to preach and pray and to shepherd the flock of God, 1 Peter 5. I get, I fully acknowledge that what I'm presenting to you, what I'm preaching, is not accepted by every single church. I mean, there's a different polity at the church down the street, and then you go another two blocks, there might be another church with a different polity down the street. And they, they get their polity from, from diff, in different ways. It could be from tradition, it could be from scripture, it could be because this is what our denomination says, therefore we do it, whatever. I am simply trying to recommend to you my best understanding of the roles of elders and deacons in the local church from God's word. And I think Acts gets us um, on that journey to understanding these roles. There's a couple more points I want to make regarding the call to serve in the local church. Um, it's clear there is a premium placed upon the preaching of God's word. I'm sure you already caught it from Acts 6. I'm sure you've caught it since we started the book of Acts. Uh, with all this said, 
my ability to preach or inability to preach, depending on your perspective, does not lessen another person's act of service in the church. That is so important to grasp. In our pastor-celebrity culture, where we see pastors not preaching from God's word, it is so common to highlight the preacher over and against everyone else. I'm telling you, I passed at least two churches where, where that is the prevailing view. It's celebrity pastor culture. That's just not what we see in God's word. Instead, what we need to do is recognize that every member of a local church has been given gifts by God, and God calls each member of the body of Christ to use their gifts in the local church for God's glory. And Lord willing, there will be times when we will see individuals rise up and serve as deacons in particular areas in the church. But we're all called serve. The question is, how is God calling you to serve in the local church? As it pertains to deacons in Acts 6, the call to serve um, came with a commissioning by the apostles. So here's verse 6. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the church commends these men to the apostles. We've picked out seven here we go. We want to take care of these Hellenistic widows. Um, you've given us kind of the, the guidelines, the, the characteristics of who we should be looking for, who they are. They put them before the apostles, and the apostles show their affirmation by praying for them and laying hands on them. The apostles, I think now elders, act with the authority given by God and commission deacons to serve. So I'm willing to suggest that this should be a nor- normative pattern or practice in this local church. When deacons are identified, they should be publicly commissioned, prayed for, laid hands upon. So what I am trying to show up to this point is that we're all called to serve in the local church, and there are different functions of service in the local church. Elders serve, deacons serve, and yes, we all serve. But what happens on a micro level here, on a local church level, is wrapped up in a macro mission of God. So what we're doing here is covered by something greater. And is God on mission to redeem his people through Jesus Christ? Is God wanting the gospel to be proclaimed? I'll simply say it again like this. We serve, God saves. You notice in, in, verse, in verse 1 of Acts 6, what was it saying? The gospel was being preached. People were getting saved. And what we got in verse 7, right? Kind of bookends to these verses. Here's verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. So people were preaching. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Wow. The word of God is preached. And Jerusalem is changing and soon the world. Even Jewish priests were being saved when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 shows us the fruit of striving for God's economy in the local church. That's I mean, brass tacks. Isn't that what we want? That's the end goal. 
whether it's me up here at a pulpit or whatever this is in music stand, preaching, uh, you all as you go out, share the gospel, talk about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, talk about how only God saves through repentance and faith in Christ. Everything about Acts 6, like these deacons and elders and service and all that stuff, all that is pointing to something greater. It's pointing to something greater. So may Redemption Hill Church also be used by God to see the increased preaching of the word and to see many people saved. This summary statement, that is verse 7, is here to remind us once again that we exist for God. We exist for his glory. And a way that we do this, the way that we can be used by God, is to serve however he has called you and me to serve. And it's for our good, and it's for the honor and glory of his name.